Blog Talk Radio. Joining us for Three Women, Three Ways, we are the show that tackles some unusual uh, issues, maybe some pretty difficult issues. Uh, I tend to be kind of outspoken on them, uh, but today, today I may have met my matches, so to speak, on my outspokenness. Um, I have two guests who are attorneys, very accomplished attorneys, experienced attorneys, who have both dealt with uh, domestic violence, and we're going to be talking about revictimization by the courts. I have with me Jeannie Gold. Jeannie, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for thanks for asking me to be on the show. You're welcome. Thanks for joining us. Jeannie uh, has a very uh, interesting background. Not only is she an attorney, she was also uh, trained in journalism and communications. She has been in New York and Florida and all over the place, and she's been a prosecutor. She's been a state attorney. She also now works uh, for uh, as an advocate. Is that a correct uh, definition for you, Jeannie? Yes, work for a women's shelter, yes. Great. She's CEO of Safe House in Florida. And I also have with me uh, Robert Rhodes. Robert Rhodes is an attorney in Seattle who has also worked both sides of the fence as far as prosecuting and defending. And he has a lot of experience in domestic violence. Robert, welcome. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for being with us. Um, this whole idea of revictimization, we um I, I have to just say that you know, sometimes when I talk with people about revictimization, they have the notion that, oh, yes, those are the women who are always being raped or abused. They, they want it. You know, so those are the people who get revictimized, or the people who set themselves up to be revictimized. Well, that's a whole other discussion, um, and we're going to bank that because when we're talking about revictimization in this context, in the context of our show today, what we're talking about is when the, uh, a person who has been victimized is re-traumatized and made a new victim by a different entity. In this case, we're talking about the courts. And I wish that I could tell you that it's a a rarity, but it's not. And what prompted this show is an article from the Orlando Sentinel about a woman in Seminole County who did not show up to her husband's trial. Her husband abused her, and she was told by the court she was given the proper paperwork and she was told she had to be there at his trial. As often happens in domestic violence situations, the woman did not show. Um, Chances are she was afraid. Perhaps she was intimidated. For whatever reason, she did not show. The Seminole County judge decided she wasn't going to get a pass on that. And in fact, after her husband was sentenced, she brought the woman in, the victim in, and told her, this was a couple days later, told her that um, she had to give a reason why she didn't show up in court. And according to the Orlando Sentinel, the woman said she was sorry for not attending. She was dealing with depression, anxiety. Um, um, She didn't come out and say she was frightened, but I think her words indicate that she was frightened to be there. And the judge said, well, you think you have anxiety now? You haven't even begun to see anxiety because you're going to jail. So the woman was sentenced to jail, and when we talk about revictimization, that's what we're talking about, a victim who is then re-victimized by the court. Jeannie, you were quoted in this article. C- 
can you tell us more about what the situation was with this particular situation? That's redundant, but you know what I'm saying. Well, I do, and I, I was, just have to say I was absolutely, and I think it even quoted me in this article, that I was appalled by what had happened when I found out this had occurred in court, and it wasn't brought to our attention till after, way after the fact, and she had already even spent the time in jail. I can't tell you how many attorneys called me and said, let me help her, let me help her, but it was after the fact that we found out about it. But I, what, what I, I understand happened was that she told the prosecuting attorneys through the victim advocate even a week prior to them picking a jury that they had um that they were they had told her they were moving forward she had said no i'm not going to she had put them on notice already that they weren't going forward and i think that's the biggest piece that got me is why would you pick a jury on a case where you knew your victim if your whole case hung on the victim why would you go forward so i immediately thought well maybe they had other evidence photographs um a 911 tape there's other evidence that can be brought you can actually bring a case to trial without a victim even though it's very difficult in this case they decided that they needed her she didn't show up and they were going to punish her after the fact for not showing up which is doesn't make any sense to me at all i don't understand why anyone would ever do that to a victim of domestic violence if they truly understood and had been educated about why a woman does not want to testify or can't testify in court. It's great if she's safe and if she's no longer um, mixed up in the world of, oh, my gosh, he's the father of my children. He might marry me someday. I might go back with him. I'd like to leave, but he's still in my life. If I have to, if once he gets out of jail, I'm scared. What am I going to do? This man has the ability to kill me or hurt me badly. What? It's not like of somebody off the street who commits a crime and then they're out of their lives again once they've testified and moved on. This is a totally different way of looking at life and and that's why domestic violence victims are are always caught up in this web of revictimization. Robert, when we're looking at this the kind of a situation though, I mean courts have rules, right? I mean do we make new rules just because of domestic violence and if we do, should we? These are complicated cases from my perspective because uh, it's true. You do victim, re-victimize a victim who is operating in a state of anxiety and panic and fear from somebody who has bullied her, harassed her, financially abused her, uh, sexually often abused her, uh, um, uh, and limits their ability to live and function on their own independently, which is why my understanding is Jeannie works with an advocate group where houses are provided that are safe and that addresses are hidden. I think Correct. the problem becomes when you're looking at a revictimization of a victim in this setting, the problem becomes what if she doesn't testify and what if this case doesn't successfully go through? And the problem is, and I think the statistics hold, that when and if she returns back to that batterer, what was abuse this time will escalate or at least be comparable the next time. And so in the desire to protect her um, in a sort of paternalistic sort of way, how I see it with the court system, they're going to force her to testify to try to break this cycle of violence or get a conviction and put um, steps in place so that, so that these two people won't be together again. 
what I found troubling from the perspective of the bench when I heard this story was that the court sort of stepped out of its uh, independent role and said, you think you have anxiety? Well, I'm going to show you anxiety. And I don't, my, my experience with judges is that their, the respect for their job is related to their ability to be impartial and render impartial hearings. And I think if she had explained the circumstances as to why she was going to take uh, and actions that basically make more fear for this woman, uh, it might have made more sense under this set of circumstances. But what I found upsetting was watching the judge step out and say, you think you have anxiety, we're going to get more anxiety. I do also know when I looked at the videos of this, however, that the judge had spoke to her earlier and said, are these accusations true? Did this man you know, choke you, put his fingers over your eyes and attack in this manner? And the woman said, yes. And so that's a very um, painful situation for anybody uh, in the criminal system to be around. In my limited experience with courts, I, and, and I'm not looking at this as an attorney, I'm not even looking at this from an advocate standpoint, I'm looking at this as a citizen standpoint. Um, when In my limited experience with judges, people who are hauled before judges, either criminally or civilly, can get away with a lot and judges will give them a lot of slack and a lot of second chances until that person does something that is against what that judge specifically said. It's, it, it, mm-hmm. And I, I picked up on, on that. I, I, I think that I have seen um, several occasions where you keep thinking, why doesn't this judge do something to stop this guy? Why does this judge keep, you know, sending him, giving him 30 more days or giving him this or giving him that? And then when the judge gives a direct order and that is violated as opposed to you have 30 days to do such and such, then the judge gets all cranky and then the hammer comes down, so to speak. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. (laughs) Crankiness is not a good thing, no. But, you know, in this case, that judge did not need to put her in jail. Uh, Really, truly, if she wanted to punish her, there's lots of things. She could have given her 50 hours of community service hours working at the safe house. She could have told her to go pick up trash along the highway. She could have fined her. She could have done so much. There's a lot of other ways to punish someone than stick them in jail for three days, especially a mom who you know is a victim of domestic violence, who you know has a child. That that was just outrageous. Well, here I go playing devil's advocate again. Is it different for a person who is supposed to go to court to testify against their attacker, should there be different rules if that person is a victim of the attacker's domestic violence as opposed to somebody who is beaten up on the street who is expected to go uh, to court? Robert, you want to handle that one? Sure. I I think there has to be a different sensitivity to any kind of assault that involves uh, close and intimate relationships, meaning if you're assaulted by somebody on the street, uh, there is no, you're never going to have to come home to them. Uh, chances are you're not going to run into them. Chances are you're not going to have to deal with them over the course of the next 18 years or whatever it is, or lifetime with children in common. The problem with intimate relationships is, and assaults and violence is that you do have to eventually come home to them or deal with them, or you hope that the system is such that permanent protection orders can be put in place limiting their access. Unfortunately, that also runs flat into uh, the problem of fathers and mothers have rights uh, to access to the children, and the courts are very reluctant, rightfully, uh, to 
limit their access to children. And so my understanding in this case was that they had children in common, and that only further complicates um, the decision. I do think that the system has to make accommodations and a program in place that I don't know how how available those programs were made in this particular case. For example, Jeannie, in terms of safety plans and uh, safe houses, I don't know to what degree the ball was dropped by the prosecutor's office in terms of not only making those available, but taking the affirmative steps of introducing those um, into this woman's life. I mean, that what you would hope is that somebody in this situation would make the decision or could have the courage under that circumstances to take the step and go away. Uh, what I have found is that often depends on the degree of support network that they have. So if the woman is a true product of domestic violence and a cycle of abuse, often what happens in that process is they get further and further isolated the further and further along that abuse goes. Yeah, that's true. And, and you know what else is in this particular case, There, we don't know, number one, if they were married or not. I don't know that. I believe they were not but had the child in common. Often another judge, family law judge, will make a decision that the father has the right to see the child or to visit with the child, and then leaving and hiding out becomes problematic for that woman as well and sometimes they just the women just give up even if we keep them in the shelter and try to get them um, help and change their lives it doesn't necessarily change where they're living in the community that we're living in it almost needs there are there are communities that do shift the they 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 do have rules that are different for victims of of um, intimate partner violence and, and sexual assault as far as showing up to court there there's certain states that I've read about, and I couldn't tell you right now with uh, um, the tip of my tongue, but I know that there are. And so so there are these issues that just kind of you have to deal with and have a, you have to have a community that will wrap itself around the victim and say, no, we're not going to tolerate abusers out there keep perpetuating this problem. And I think that the whole the bigger problem is look to look at what can we do to change, you know, the way we look at violence and people's um intimate intimate violence in the homes. You know, that's what the NFL and all these things coming out now about home um family violence. There's gotta be a shift. Why can't we look at and this is so crazy, but why can't we look at the abusers and the batterers and the bad guys like we do other crimes? You know, is there a way to look at them and take it a step further? And somebody told me, I don't know if this is true, but this is the crazy piece, that in Israel they have, when there are domestic violence abusers, they have them go into a shelter, and they are kind of dealt with, um, kind of like jail, I guess, but but it's different because they're tra- they're taught to be different and to think about societal issues and family issues differently. It's kind of cool because why can't a woman live in a society and feel safe when – I mean, we have to hide every. It seems like we have to hide victims, get them squirreled away somewhere, and it just it doesn't seem right. Because what other crime do you have to do that for? Well, and I think that brings up an interesting point. I remember I, we were just talking about this on a show last week, I think, or the week before, 
Um, when I was a kid, I remember I, I was so bright when I was a child. I remember there was a news article about Indira Gandhi, and now you know exactly how old I am because I was a kid when Indira Gandhi was uh, uh, head of India. Um, but there was a huge problem with rape, and the uh, uh, government was trying to deal with this. And they were talking about all sorts of things to, that they could do about this issue of rape. And one of the things that they suggested was that they put a curfew on the women. And I remember yeah. as a kid reading this article where Indira Gandhi said, no, we should put the curfew on the men. They're the ones yes, that are doing exactly. the exactly. <laughs> and I have never uh, forgotten I that. I love that. And, and what you're saying now is, you know, yeah, we should put the men in the shelter. I like that. You know, we've got a couple <laughs> of other questions, but I want to throw out our phone number. If you have experience with victimization by the courts, if you um, uh, just have something you want to throw in, we can, of course, look at your comment or question on our chat line. But you can also give us a phone call, 646-378-0430. That's 646 378 0430. So, Robert, I think that you and I both live in King County, and I think that King County judges tend to be pretty well educated about the phenomenon of domestic violence. But I can think of a couple of counties that are right next door to us, and the horror stories that come from women in those counties just appall me. And that brings me to the question of, it's kind of catches catch can educating judges about domestic violence. I've spoken with judges who claim and whose peers claim that they really get it. They really understand domestic violence. And when I speak with them and hear some of their attitudes and and their beliefs, I just kind of, you know, my jaw drops. How do we train judges to be sensitive to the situation like this woman encountered in Orlando? I think the difficulty in with the judicial system is the dual roles that the, or the two competing issues that are going on with a judge. Uh, a judge is there to uh, hear uh, the victim and hear uh, a case independently, and at the same time, it brings the authority of our system bear on individual litigants. In this case, you know, two people in a relationship, and so <clears throat> in many ways, the court system is where justice. Is produced, and it's also where uh, games are supposed to be stopped, where resolution is supposed to be coming from. And so, I think for many court systems, I think it's a very difficult to balance those two issues. On one end of things, you want them educated and aware that you're dealing with a victim under this set of circumstances who's psychologically been uh, <clears throat> battered at minimum. And on the other end of things, the court system, in order to administer justice, has to have a certain level of respect for their authority. And um, as with many parents, the same problem becomes, uh, how do you instill respect for authority? Is it by word or is it by um, uh, uh, discipline? And that's, I think, the difficult situation that it appears that this particular judge was put in. <clears throat> Interestingly enough, a woman, uh, in terms of uh, looking at this, looking at another woman in this set of circumstances and asserting her authority over her. And so I think in terms of educating the court system, my experience is that this system, this is quite, at least in Washington, this is quite a, the judges are pretty aware of it and they do it through uh, judicial education seminars. But I think what you 
fortunately and unfortunately, depending on the circumstances, you bring every judge brings their experiences and their independent opinion and viewpoint uh, as a judge and as an elected official to the situation. Uh, so, uh, I, in terms of further education, I I actually see the system as being educated. What I see is the the bigger problem or the bigger issue being that tension between uh, the court being the end of the road or trying to be the end of the road of a problem. And on the other end of things, the inability to do something about systemic problems in relationships that are for, that are bad, that are not healthy. They're not, uh, domestic violence relationships don't build healthy communities, don't build healthy families. Jeannie, what's your answer to that question about how – well, first of all, do you see well, a need, uh, uh, um, more of a need for educating judges to be sensitive to those particular situations and needs of domestic violence situations? I keep using that word situations. Well, Forgive me. I know, I know. <laughs> well, you know, it, interesting, interestingly, I have been fighting for years to have – uh, you know, a specialized court in Seminole County. Um, judges who, a few judges who who hear all the cases that have to do with the family, with the domestic violence cases, but not only domestic violence, because there's always something else going on, it seems, with the family. And it seems so silly, and I don't know in Washington whether you all have domestic violence courts or you know we have juvenile courts and veterans courts and drug courts and all they're all specialized well there is not one and there seems to be resistance to a domestic violence court in Seminole based mostly upon the terms that judges like to use which are in quotes burnout nobody wants burnout because these family law cases are just so hard to to handle and deal with i mean it's life and life is tough, and it's interesting. But how great would it be if you had one judge, and the Florida Supreme Court actually wants kind of this idea of a unified family court, but you had one judge who handled everything going on with the cases, or the case in, the, in that one family. Let's say there's a divorce. Let's say there's a paternity suit. Let's say there's a juvenile case. Let's say there's a dependency. We haven't even talked about, it's a whole other show, about failure to protect and how women have to deal with sometimes the, the law coming down on them from a whole other piece. Why didn't you leave? How dare you stay in that relationship and not protect your children? It's a whole other piece that, they're, that they're, these moms are having to deal with. But I believe that, sure, judges need more education, but it would be better to educate a few judges and who really get their head around what's going on and then have them try to help the family from a more, a, a more holistic approach but also looking at it from a, a, a not bringing so much of their their. Uh, experiences in life and what they've gone through. I mean, what if you have a judge who had a divorce and had kids that, you know, he had to fight over? That judge or he or she is going to come to the table with a lot different, um, or many different ideas. And it just seems like if you have a basic curriculum that is more structured and it would be um, more geared toward consistency that it would be um it would it would be a better world for all of us and i know that it's there's there's places where this is successful it's not that it isn't being done where there's domestic violence courts and more 
unified family um, courts that are established. So I would promote that um, all over, and I don't know, I guess everything is done state by state, but, I mean, in Florida we try so hard to, you know, to to educate and educate and educate, and then comes out that maybe they have to do an violence training every two years. You know, that's not really educating. <laughs> yeah. So, well, and, Florida, and it's, it's like not what we want. I mean, there are a lot you of know. trainers out there who supposedly uh, inform people about domestic violence, and they're kind of sketchy, you know, uh, as no, far as their true. understanding of it. That's true. Um, so, uh, I mean, I, one of the things that I see, um, again, I, as a layperson, I, I think there's a real crisis in the courts when we're, when we're talking about domestic violence, um, not only because of the conflicts between, you know, failure to protect, but also, I mean, you'll have uh, Child Protective Services telling a woman that she cannot, she must protect those children from the, the uh, abuser, and then she goes to family court, and the judge says you must give that abuser the right to <laughs> see the children, and if you don't, you're you're uh, you know practicing what is the word parental alienation, yeah. and we're going to take the kids away from you to punish you. You know, um, yes. so, I mean, there's a whole there's a whole thing. But let's kind of get back. You know, there's uh, there's many ways that a victim can be re-victimized in court, not just by being sent to jail because of not showing up for the trial. Um, I have two is, thoughts. Is this like, Robert? Is this something that? Yeah, I have two thoughts in, in terms of well, systematically what could change and. Genie's suggestions are interesting. I think also what's interesting is whether or not the court is able to establish in a domestic violence case a jurisdiction uh, over a victim of domestic violence, meaning in this particular set of circumstances, the court was able to establish jurisdiction because she said that, that this particular woman was in contempt of court. And that becomes an interesting question because if you get jurisdiction over the victim, is it going to be further victimization of the victim or does it allow a court to approach these cases more holistically? I think the second interesting thing potentially on this is start appointing lawyers for the victims as we appoint lawyers yeah. to the defendants, specifically only in domestic violence situations and close and intimate personal relationships. And then the third thing that I think is most relevant or is often underappreciated, is that advocates in this particular set of circumstances, if I was a trained lawyer who's representing a victim, as I represented, for example, a defendant, my ability to sway a case is directly related to my, the ability to talk to the court and the ability to, to paint the picture to the prosecutor or to the judge or to the jury. And so I think if a, uh, a trained orator is able to get involved in these kinds of cases, I think the respect and the attention of the court will be got is is going to increase if that Bye. dynamic was changed. Of course, unfortunately, that means funds that could otherwise be shifted to shelters or otherwise be shifted to other social problems would be shifted to handling this particular issue. But if we're talking about families and we're talking about which is the cornerstone and theory of our society, it seems like a wise investment. It does. I agree. I agree. Yeah, and, and that whole idea of giving victims of domestic violence um, uh, legal assistance, I mean, I don't have the statistics in front of me. I was actually just kind of trying to, to Google real quick, but it's a very high percentage of domestic violence victims who represent themselves um, in court. Especially in injunction hearings, yes. Yeah, and of course, you know, that's never, never an effective strategy. Um, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not an attorney, but I know enough to know that. 
Um, Robert, well, even in this come? case, I should. I just want to point out, and I don't know if it's the um, in your your procedures in Washington, but in Florida, what we we were looking at this later, and she was being held in direct contempt of court and put in jail. Now, if you really thought about it, what do you think, Robert? If you looked at the fact that the fact that she received that subpoena was not while she was in court. So she was not coming to court based upon a order that was given to her outside of her being in, in court, which means that would be held in more of an indirect con- criminal contempt or an indirect contempt of court, and then she would absolutely then require under the rules to have an attorney with her if she was looking at going to jail, that that judge should have provided an attorney for her at that time based upon it being indirect criminal contempt rather than direct. I think that raises a good issue. Uh, and I think if I, if you listen to what this woman said, she is, as we all are when we're on our own subjective problems, we're not our, the most articulate versus somebody who is right. listened to a story and objective. And so perhaps some of the reasons why she was un- afraid to come to court, and perhaps even teasing out the fact that she was afraid of this particular man to such a degree that she wasn't going to attend court. But that, from my perspective, exactly. if I was a judge, would trigger the problem of, well, I need to make her more afraid of me than of him because I want to break this cycle. I want to do something. I'm, I yeah. became a judge yeah. because I want to change behaviors, positive direction. And so that's, uh, on the other end of things, it's very hard to say to a victim uh, who's been battered in this set of circumstances, uh, anything harsh, because their situation is already harsh. Right. She's already beaten down. Well, not only that, you know, please please save us from those who want to save us. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, yeah. No one knows what that particular woman is living with. You know, nobody knows. She is the one who knows about what she's living with and not the judge. So the judge might be very, you know, in her heart thinking that she's going to really be able to help this woman by coming down hard on this situation. But in fact, she may have made things terribly worse for this woman. She just doesn't know. If I can Um, add on that, you know, it's interesting because what do, what should judges do in these sets of circumstances if they're going, if there is no advocate and there is no hearing as to, and there is no, there is no formal speaking uh, speaker on behalf of the victim, and we're left with these sort of semi-coherent stories that the courts hear, I, I think it it really does become very difficult not to want to take some kind of affirmative action, just to blame devil's advocate from the other direction. I know that the court system, for example, will overlook a lot of perjurious remarks because somebody isn't a victim of domestic violence. And in the state of Washington, the amount of uh, cases that have been charged as perjury have gone down dramatically because systemically now courts are very hesitant to hold that the truth-speaking function of the court system accountable. And so I think <laughs> at, at what point do uh, do we are we systematically changing the court system to the point that it's no longer respected place of law where justice is to be administered in order to accommodate people that are coming to the court system in a victim in a victim status because when the no, more you she do could that have, oh she could oh, have administered justice without putting her in jail there's other avenues probate i mean there's all kinds of things why put her in jail 
What I'm hearing, you, ladies, gentlemen, please. Um, what, I, <laughs> what I'm hearing is the, that we, you know, courts are about rules. So it's very important when you're talking about a court to obey the rules. But the purpose of a judge, by definition, is you get to decide what you're going to do when you're punishing somebody for breaking a rule. Um, and, and so I, I'm kind of hearing us saying that, okay, yep, she broke a rule. Under her circumstances and, and under her story, we understand why she broke that rule. So therefore, it seems that the judge can say, okay, slap on the hand for breaking the rule, but because of these circumstances, you know, uh, right on the blackboard 50 times, I will co- show up to court next time, um, as opposed to spending right. time in jail. Um, is that right. what I'm hearing you guys saying? Uh, well, that's what I well, think I'm hearing Jeannie saying. I, I, yeah, I'm saying uh, it. <laughs> I, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I, and I think I, I am, I'm, I've played both sides of the fence so much that I, it's very hard for me to, uh, to, without having been in the courtroom and heard all the facts, um, start second guessing a court's opinion. Uh, as statements taken out of context work great for media, but don't really work well. For listening to the whole story so this particular circumstance is certainly uh given this woman's reaction uh and um, and the court's um frustration uh in this particular circumstances i don't know whether or not the court was rightfully frustrated i don't know how many other how many how many cases have this has this particular couple appeared in court i mean there are, are couples where there's five six prior cases and the cycle of abuse is in full bloom. Uh, and it does, this judge asked her, which was kind of interesting, off the record or on the record, asked her, was, was what you testified true? And the woman said yes. So I she know. had very real hard facts to convict potentially a very dangerous, potentially dangerous or very dangerous man or to change circumstances. And that moment slipped through her hands because of the victim in this particular set of circumstances didn't show up. And uh, when I hear um, Jeannie, you talking about, you know, how she was served and what the circumstances were, I think if you really want as a prosecutor's office to get a victim to appear in court, uh, perhaps the attention paid to that victim needs to be more than cursory and a victim's advocate who calls on the telephone, but yes, perhaps a I more agree. active presentation of support and, of a system in which she can go through over the course of six months or a year and actually put together a life, rebuild the direction without uh, this particular man coming back in her life. Because if she's stuck in a, in a victim, as she, if she is stuck in a cycle of violence, there's no question. If, the, if this guy can get a hold of the phone number and track down an address, within the next six months mm-hmm. he'll be back again with her or pursuing her. And so... It's very hard to say well, whether or not jail let, would be right in the circumstance. Let me tell you one um, piece of um, ev- or what, something that I found out was that the man had a prior with another woman. That's why they were coming. He, it, he didn't have a prior with this particular person, but he'd been mm-hmm. in the system and had a prior with someone else. And mm-hmm. then... Um, I think that they were they were the prosecutor's office got the jo- judge all upset about it because they really wanted to get this guy and mm-hmm. unfortunately this particular victim 
was going to do it for them, you know, and mm-hmm. I think they put all their their hope in, into her to try to get him, and that's really not her role. I mean, she was a victim. Unfortunately, they get him didn't get him the first time with the other woman, and he'll be back with someone else, I'm sure, in the future. But the guy did serve 16 days in jail. He got credit for time served. At least they got something out of him. And to tell you what, as a former prosecutor who, I mean, lots of my cases went south (laughs) with the domestic violence and you know to get 16 days in jail was pretty good i thought (laughs) wasn't Mm -hmm. that it wasn't that he totally walked scot-free but the judge was all riled up about the fact that 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 they were going to get this guy and they they weren't able to and it was all this victim's fault what ha- what has happened? Uh, is is anybody going to appeal this little three day jail sentence, or it's not worth it, or is it just a little hubbub yeah, in the media? Or is- I, apparently, and I'm just getting this very third hand because I've had attorneys reach out and say they they could get her. Please let them know if she ever contacted me that um, they would love to get her record expunged. And so I've I kind of kind of have a thought of where she's at. She was not a um, she's not involved with uh, Safe House. Um, as far as I know, as far as, you know, much, I can't really say anything else about whether she was in contact with others about what was going on. But right now I haven't been contacted by her, and we've put out that, hey, if you want to get your record expunged, you can certainly contact me and I'll make that happen, or I'll at least find a lawyer, several lawyers who reached out and said, hey, we'd like to work on this for her for, for, you know, for free and move on. And so I think right now, I will tell you, somebody told me that they went on his, um, the, the guy, nobody seems to talk about the guy, right? The guy's well, name is Well, they never do in these situations. Yeah, isn't that amazing? Nobody. Oh, it's just a bad guy, and he walked away. Did he walk away? You know, what happened? But the, apparently um, I was told that on his Facebook page, the day this hit the news, um, it showed him holding the little child that they have together just smiling, and he's just smiling away holding the child. Um, and, you know, just kind of saying, I'm here and I can do whatever I want kind of thing. Of course, that's how we advocates think about it. But, you know, he's gone on with his life. I don't know what's gone on with her life. I feel badly for her. But I certainly, if, if she ever, you know, wants to um, have somebody work on her behalf, there's several attorneys in Seminole County who have come forward. So put that, put that out there. <laughs> Robert, have you encountered this in your practice or, or some of your colleagues' practices where uh, the victim has been re-victimized by, uh, because of not showing up in court? I have. I, I, if I'm representing a defendant, for example, uh, the man in this set of circumstances, it is crystal clear to me that if somebody shows up in the courtroom and they have never spoken in public before and they don't know how to keep it, uh, a logical train of thought under pressure, and they're scared and they're nervous, that their ability to articulate the circumstances effectively is uh, they just don't have a chance from my perspective. And so I think if you want to level the playing field on that level, uh, I think they just – and a victim's advocate is effective, but they're not a court – again, there is a difference between a trained speaker and somebody who has um, uh, had some education on the topic, but not necessarily uh, making a living at it or making it their calling. So, um, uh, in 
Revictimization of victims, the only thing I can add on that is that the more that a court or a judge hears about the circumstances of this, and I think this discussion is kind of reflective of that even the three of us, we don't know the intimate details of this particular um, victim in this circumstances. And I think I would wonder if the court had, or my experience is that the less that the full picture is presented to the court, the more likely it is that the court is going to go off and miss the point. And so uh, I can only say, yes, I can see, I've seen, uh, I've come in with uh, victims charged uh, for domestic violence by their batterer, uh, Mm -hmm. because it's really not that hard to set somebody up for criminal charges. All you need is marks and, uh, and the right behavior and uh, the, the, police officers that are involved in investigating these cases have somewhere between 15, 20 minutes to wrap up a case and make a decision. And because of the domestic violence laws that are in place, at least in the state of Washington, if that alleged incident has happened in the last four hours, they have a mandatory responsibility to arrest. So I can think of a particular female who, interestingly enough, was charged in one of the outlying counties who I represented. And there was no question that she was being re-victimized. And if her sisters hadn't put together the funds to have a, a private lawyer involved in the case, I am certain that, that she would have not caught the attention of the prosecutor or the public defender who doesn't have the time to sit down and listen to two hours about what's going on, take declarations, put together a case, tell the prosecutor, hey, wait, watch. Your victim is going to start calling you with increasing frequency over the next three months and become increasingly <laughs> demanding because he is a batterer and he has just lost control because I'm going to keep my client away from him. And like clockwork, that's exactly Mm -hmm. what happened. And interestingly enough, after about three or four months and my credibility now suddenly at an all-time high because factually what I said was true, emotionally what I said was true, my credibility as a speaker went up, the prosecutor eventually didn't dismiss the case, interestingly enough, but offered basically a diversionary program that avoided having it go on her criminal record or having to admit to having done anything wrong. And so... Yay! We need more lawyers like you in Florida. Yeah, no kidding. Although I've got issues with those diversionary programs uh, myself. Well, I do um, but... (laughs) You know, one of the things (laughs) that you're talking about, Robert, is um, uh, the... I have because I've been doing this for a number of years now and and I'm not an advocate and I'm not an attorney but I'm I'm there and I'm aware and I'm I'm seeing these things that are going on mostly from an academic standpoint but I did a show with a a family court judge from another state and I uh, was told by different associations and different individuals that uh, in this other state, uh, actually in several states, that I needed to have this particular judge on my show because she really gets it. She really understands domestic violence. And in my speaking with this judge, I, you know, I mean, I, my socks were blown off because I asked her, please tell me what goes through a judge's mind when you have two people in front of you arguing over custody, fighting over custody, one has documented domestic violence in their background and one does not. How, what is the judge thinking when the judge then gives custody of those children to that abuser? Because that's happening more and more. And her response was, well, you've got two people in front of you. And one is in charge, in control, he's got his life together. The other one is a mess. 
she's out of control, she's confused, she's uh, frantic, she doesn't, she can't even keep control of her own life, let alone that of her children. So if the domestic violence isn't, and this is a direct quote, that bad, we'll give the children <laughs> to the man who's in control until she gets her act together. Ah, oh, that's so sad. Now, oh. Oh, first of all, this tells me this woman does not get it. You know, I mean, if somebody right. is fighting to take away your children, somebody that you know wins at all costs, of course you're exactly. going to be frantic. Of course you are going to be threatened and upset. Um, it seems to me, from what we were saying about having legal representation and somebody who has it together and who can be articulate, we need to start giving... Um, lessons and classes to victims on deportment and, and <laughs> you know, demeanor, <laughs> how to yes. make a really great in-charge in demeanor before you go in front of a judge. Either that or we well, like can help judges understand that uh, uh, being frantic and out of control is not necessarily a sign of some sort of mental illness or incapacity. That observation right. I throw That's out to good. you and... I'm, uh, Robert, what uh, have you seen this? Is, is this? Give me your comments on that. Uh, I think it's. Uh, I think there's no question that if somebody sounds calm and rational, they're perceived as calm and rational. And uh, <laughs> so whether they are or not is another story altogether. And I, I, my own my because the situation is for me, it's almost an it's a. We're in a progress, a progressive state of whatever United States is going to be developed into as a multicultural society and as a society where women and men are to have equal standing and equal footing in front of the court and the legal system. And I, the only answer I've been able to come to is that it all boils down to the grade of advocacy. And we have seen that produce um, absurd results, uh, O.J. Simpson trial for example uh and we have also and it also does produce good results and so um yeah i don't think that there is any woman that is a victim of domestic violence that at least in the initial six or nine month stage that i have seen that is articulate logical clear thinking without a healthy and thriving support network and I think, for example, what Jeannie does is she is trying to, although she is not family and though she is not close friends, she is uh, the, the system's answer to that problem. I think the problem mm -hmm. with people that are involved in domestic violence or women that are involved in domestic violence in particular is that they've driven away their friends or their friends have been driven away or their pleas for help have been a cry interpreted at this point like Peter and the cry for wolf. And mm -hmm. so people are so tired of hearing the same uh, repetitious cycle taking place that even family and friends get driven away from that particular individual. And so the question becomes, how do you get somebody to realize that it's got to stop? And in my experiences, the only way to do that is to invest the time. And in order to invest the time, there has to be the resources, either private, privately or publicly. And so, I, you know, that's the slightly longer answer to no, I don't really see people who are victims of domestic violence being very articulate. And yes, they absolutely need articulate advocates for them in order to appear or to 
even put their life together in a way that becomes logical. What do you do if you don't have belongings, you don't have an ID, and you have two children, and you fled in a car, and you had a safety plan, so you have some things, but you have almost nothing to start over with. And somebody says, go find a job, you know, get your life together, get a place to live. And by the way, there's a person out there that if you slip up and they get a hold of you, they're going to show up at your address, and you're going to be terrified that there's going to be extreme violence. These are not easy. That's, that's not a simple plan to execute for anybody, male or female. And so um, it's, a, it's a complex question. Yeah, it is. And certainly not one we're going to be able to answer in the next 10 minutes or so. But um, I think that the, the points that you have made, um, Robert, also reflect uh, when we started out this discussion, we were talking specifically about uh, scenarios where the victim is re-victimized by the court, by the judge. And certainly that happens a lot. But there are other ways that victims are re-victimized by the court system and the judicial system. And I'm talking all of those ancillary people, the psychologists that are called on board to do evaluations, the guardians ad litem who, God help us, protect us from those, some of those guardian ad litems, i got to tell you. And I've gone through, I, and I have to tell oh, you, Robert, yeah. I have gone through the guardian ad litem training by the King County Bar Association. And they make a nice little attempt to talk about domestic violence. They really do. But they are not spot on. They are absolutely not spot on, and it's pretty much half-hearted. That's my opinion. <laughs> you, don't, you don't even have to respond to that. It's just my opinion. Um, but there are many other ways that, that these, these ancillary people can re-victimize uh, a, a domestic violence victim. Um, we talked about how one part of the law might be, you know, uh, contrary to another part of the law, putting a person in an impossible Sophie's choice. We've also talked about um, one of the things that I have seen is where uh, the court says, okay, you have to have a psych eval. And so the person goes for the psych eval and the psychologist, and I, and I have to tell you, I'm working right now on my dissertation for my Ph.D. in psychology. I could just stab myself when I hear some of these stories. You, you go in, and the 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 perpetrator will go to his his psychologist, and everything, every word he says is absolute gospel. It's written up in the report that she did this to him, and da 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 da. You know, nobody ever goes. Wait a minute, maybe we should look at this a little differently. So all these reports are flying around. You've got the GALs, you've got the psychologists, you've got the you know ev everybody is flying around listening to the person that they're listening to. All of this stuff comes back to a judge. All of those reports are are re-victimizing that victim. I don't know that there's a solution to that, but is there an awareness by the courts and by the attorneys of how often these reports, these um, uh, these ancillary people, are actually re-victimizing that person? I again, it goes back to the advocate. I believe. And it goes back to the ability of the uh, we're in an adversarial system, and so it, the responsibility as an attorney fall it falls on the whoever is representing her uh, to sway the system in a different way, to be aware of uh, resources and advocates and uh, evaluators that are sensitive to these kinds of issues, have a network readily available um, for non people that are not aware of these circumstances to access a list of people that uh, you can't say biased, but are at least aware of the problems 
relating to people in these sets of circumstances. And so I see what I don't see, for example, in King County, despite us being a very forward, arguably forward-looking county, is I don't see a dedicated site where not only are the shelters listed, but evaluators that are, uh, Eugenie, you were talking about training, uh, who have at least gone through the attempts to learn about these kinds of circumstances. I think the problem is that you really can speculate academically about power and control dynamics, but until you see them playing out, you really can't have an understanding of what it really means. And uh, fundamentally, I always think these are interesting because it really boils down to often uh, the ability of for men who are physically stronger than women to establish a dominant, physically dominant relationship with them and then things to sort of cascade from there and uh, and looking at a at a partner as a piece of property instead of somebody who is um, a, in a voluntary relationship with you and can leave anytime they want to and so how do you you know how do you start convincing a woman and we'll just continue to use that because 95 percent of the time it is or maybe more uh, how do you convince somebody that they're not property how do you convince somebody that what they've been what they've gone through is the wrong way of looking at it, that there are people out there that will not look at you, uh, that will engage in a relationship with you in, on a voluntary basis. How do you break the training of what you perceive a relationship is? Meaning uh, a woman that's gone through domestic violence, we all know statistically are likely to reenter another relationship with another batterer. This gentleman in this particular situation is interesting in Florida as he had already just finished with one woman and he's moved on to another one. And we know that he'll probably move, they, uh, and he will move on to somebody else that's attracted to the same pattern and behavior. And I think of the victims that I've represented, and I think about that a requirement, for example, of my representation is always that they go and join a victim's advocate group. Why? It's a group of women that have common experience and wisdom around these kinds of dynamics, and they can start saying, hey, look, you know, you don't. It's better to be alone than to be abused. And there are relationships out there that are happy and healthy, and, and, and the disagreements never explode into violence, and your bank account is not going to be limited, and they're not going to just simply take from you, but they're going to give as well. And I don't know, I may have meandered off point a bit, but, mm, again, yeah. it's a complicated topic. <laughs> It's about well, power and, and, and control. I do, you know, I, there people have been debating forever whether, and that in fact comes under one of the the classifications of revictimization, that there is a personality or a set of characteristics of the victim that uh, makes her more readily victimized again, um, in any context, whether it's through the courts or not. Um, that's debatable. That's been debated. And um, I think my personal opinion is is that when one out of three women faces domestic violence uh, and, and gets into a relationship with domestic violence, um, how many relationships do we have? I mean, if, if I, I think that it's just the numbers that, um, you know, if, if you leave this relationship and then by golly, you know, five years from now you happen to find yourself in another domestic violence situation, I think it has less to do with you than the fact that there's so many abusers out there and so many abusers who, who are available to abuse you. 
That's my personal opinion. That's, I don't have data to support that. That's why you should lean on the on the abusers, not the not the victims. Though it seems like, and you know, criminal cases are different than family law too. And when you look at family law, the revictimization is huge because it is a whole different set of, well, like you said, visitation and who gets the child and who has custody and who's having a psyche eval and who's going to these classes and parenting classes and doing what they need to do in order to secure their children. We have women in the shelter who are trying to get their children back because they were taken away because they stayed in a domestic violence relationship. They have since left, come to safe house, and they're having to go through hell with the this family plan or the um the parenting plan and it it it's amazing the things they have to do and the hoops they have to jump through to even qualify to start seeing their children on weekends and and work on getting their children back so it, that's it really, a, I, I think there is a, a real crisis in our family courts uh, I really do um the the um thing that I see with the whole custody issue uh, is just enormous. And of the, you know, there's always that age-old question, again, asking the questions about her, not about him. Uh, instead of why does he exactly. abuse, it was why does she stay? Um, and I must tell you that most of the women I know who do not leave a domestic violence situation when we all think they should stay because of the children. Because at least if they're there, they can do some attempt to protect their children. If they exactly. leave, the courts are going to give those child, that child or those children to that abuser, unsupervised for the most part, I mean, unless he's done something really egregious. Right. And, and then they you have to fear the emotional damage to those kids Exactly. when they're with him. Robert, do you agree with that? Yeah. Uh, I, I agree that... Uh, <laughs> I agree that any time that a, that a child is given unsupervised access to a parent in a divorce setting, I, divorces are difficult. Why? It's always amusing to me, and it's why I stay out of family law. Two people who have decided that they're irreconcilably unable to get along are now being told they need to form an agreement and stick by it and <laughs> act rationally. Yeah. At, um, that is funny. And <laughs> so it's really, it, it is darkly, it's very amusing especially when you have some, but and perhaps more on the dark end of things when it's now in a domestic violence setting because as somebody who has who has a who has a predisposition towards power and control dynamics and a predisposition towards trying to establish it always a dominant role and always a dominant angle in a relationship that will not stop and so uh, the children are going to hear negative things about the mother against almost across the board any family law book. In fact, any even basic two-hour divorce seminar that is often required mm -hmm. now across this nation, uh, they said so one thing that you firmly stick behind is, look, you don't badmouth the other parent. Well, that's not going to happen in a domestic violence case. Well, and, and even going people to, who are trying to not badmouth, I mean, it, it, they don't have to be maliciously doing it, just tones of voice and things you, you can convey. Sure, sure. Your, your just feelings, to, yeah. Just yeah, just negating yeah. and undermining somebody else's point of view. And if somebody is, uh, you know, well, coming out of a that kind yeah. of situation, that it won't stop. It's, so it is tough. It is tough, no matter how we look at it. Um, the the whole going through the court system is difficult. 
I can't believe we have 60 seconds left on the show, Robert and Jeannie. I really appreciate your being here to talk this over. I'm not sure we solved any problems with the world, but hopefully we've educated some folks and, and opened up some ideas about what's happening here. I usually uh, end the show with a quote, and the best I could come up with today is uh, from the National Crime Victim Law Institute, which actually was involved in a situation in Washington State, I think, in 2013. Um, and they... Uh, uh, do a lot about preventing revictimization, and their words are, all too often, victims of crime report that enduring the criminal justice system is itself a type of victimization, a secondary or re-victimization. And I think that we would have no end to the number of people who would agree to that, uh, winners and losers in the whole divorce uh, situ- the whole divorce and domestic violence game. Robert Rhodes, thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Jeannie Gold, thank you, and thank you for both for the work that you do on behalf of domestic violence victims, and uh, thank you for being here. Please join us next week when we ta- tackle another difficult topic in three women. Anyway.